Good afternoon. Thank you all so much for joining us today for our conversation with Alexandra Hudson, the author of the new book, The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. I'm Alan Carey, the Director of Sphere Education Initiatives here at the Cato Institute. So pleased to have you joining us both here in person as well as those of you joining us online for this joint event between the Cato Institute and our Sphere Education Initiatives project. Uh, Lexi, thank you again so much for being here and for writing what I think is a fantastically researched, beautifully written exploration of some of the most important ideas to both what the Cato Institute is doing, but also here at Sphere. I wanted to begin by asking you to sort of lay the groundwork out for thinking about some of the unique ways in which you think about civility. So, so often, as you, as you lay out in the book, when we think about civility, that's often conflated with this idea of manners or etiquette or customs. Uh, but you argue that that's a, a mistake to think about that and that there's something broader around this idea of civility and something deeper, both historically uh, and as we think about how that impacts ourselves. So I wonder if you might give us a little bit of a landscape uh, that informed the, the beginning parts of your book. Yes, I just want to say thank you to Alan. Thanks to Sphere and Cato for having me. Last time I was here in this um, auditorium was... Uh, 15, no, 13 years ago was Cato University. I was, uh, so it's fun um, to now be on this side of the stage and so just really grateful for the invitation and, uh, and to, to, to be back here. Um, so I came by my interest in this topic of civility and social norms honestly. My mother is called Judy the Manners Lady. Mm. So she's this internationally renowned expert on manners and etiquette. Um, and I realized that while writing this book, there are actually uh, four internationally renowned experts on matters and etiquette named Judy. <laughs> the most prominent might be um, Judith Martin, the, the longtime Washington Post columnist who goes by Miss Manners, but there are three others, and my mother is one mm. of them. And my mother is both an unbelievably gracious, you know, hospitable, other-oriented person who embodies the spirit of true civility as I explore it and define it throughout my book, but she also taught my brothers the ways and means of politeness. And I, I am, this won't surprise you, Alan, I'm constitutionally allergic to authority. I hate <laughs> rules. I hate being told what to do. And so I remember my mother asking us to set the table just so and cut our food, you know, just so. I, I, I hungered for a reason why. You know, why do we do things the way that we do them? Is it just because some self-appointed authority somewhere sometime decided that we should? And if, if that's the case, is that the best way? And I never sufficiently got those answers to why we do things the way we do them. So, but I, you know, my mother promised that following these rules of uh, politeness would lead to success in school and work and life. And she was right until I got to federal government. I uh, served 2017 to 2018, and it was a very divided time in our, our, our nation's um, country, our, our nation and our capital specifically. And I experienced that division uh, at, a, at a microcosm while I was in government. I, I saw these two extremes. On one hand, I saw people who were, um, they had sharp elbows, and they were hostile and abrasive and aggressive. They were willing to step on anyone to get ahead. And on the other hand, I saw people who were, at first I thought they were my people. They were polished and poised and polite. But these are the people who I realized would smile and flatter me and others one moment, and then stab us in the back the next. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and that really perplexed me, uh, this, this, this second contingent, because one thing my mother had said to me growing up was that manners mattered because they were an outward expression of our inward character. Mm. And yet here I was, surrounded by people who were well-mannered enough and yet ruthless and cruel. Uh, so this, this, um, this experience of government, these two extremes, um, taught me several things. One is that at first, I thought that these two extremes were polar opposites, the extreme hostility and extreme politeness. But I actually realized they're quite similar. They're actually two sides of the same coin because each sees other human beings as means to their own selfish ends as opposed to beings who are worthy of respect and, um, and, and um, in and of themselves, just by virtue of our shared moral status as members of the human community. And um, you know, the, the aggressive and hostile contingent sees others as um, you know, pawns to be bowled over and stepped on, whereas the uh, polite contingent sees other, others as pawns to be manipulated. And neither have a sufficiently high view of the gift of being human, which is what my book argues for. Um, and second, this experience taught me that there is an essential distinction between civility and politeness. So I argue in the book that uh, you know we we often conflate these words today. We hear you know there there are kind of two extremes today. On one hand, there are people that uh, say we just need more civility and politeness in order to. Uh, overcome our differences, and they harken back often to an, a golden age of of comity and and uh, harmony in, in mm -hmm. Congress and in American public life. And and then there's another contingent that says no, civility and politeness they're part of the problem. Um, they are they're tools of the patriarchy. They're tools mm -hmm. of people in positions of power to uh, silence and oppress the powerless. So we need right. less civility and politeness in public life. And both these contingents miss this essential distinction between civility and politeness that I argue for throughout my book. I say, politeness is etiquette. It's manners, it's technique, it's behavior, it's external. Whereas civility is internal. It's a disposition of the heart. It's a way of seeing others as our moral equals and worthy of a bare minimum of respect, again, just by virtue of, of, of being human. Mm -hmm. And that crucially, sometimes actually respecting others, actually loving someone, requires being impolite. It requires telling hard truths, engaging in robust debate, having uncomfortable conversations. That's a way to actually respect someone. So throughout the book, I make the case that, you know, um, where politeness at its best can, you know, mitigate social discomfort at its worst. It can be harmful for the joint project of living well. It can manipulate and instrumentalize others, whereas civility, the disposition of respecting others, is always good. And that we need more civility and less of the tone policing and faux respect that of, of politeness mm -hmm. in order to help us thrive and flourish today. So you talk in the book, I, I love that as a, an introduction to thinking about this idea, and particularly this notion of civility as a disposition of the heart. Uh, because there's something about that, that weaving together a variety of these different threads that comes out and manifests in the way in, that we engage each other, particularly in, in situations, say, different from your experience working in the, the federal government, but common to all working in the federal mm -hmm. government. So thinking about... Uh, Civility, as you talk about it in the book, as both a combination of your uh, the, being good for yourself mm -hmm. and good for society, right? The things that help us get along in a plural, open mm -hmm. uh, community like the world is today. I, 
How do you think about that, the combination between the two? What it is that allows the one to be both good for you and for good for society as a whole? What, what is it about civil society, that, or civility rather, that enables civil society to work? Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you for that question. I've thought a lot about this. The um, Plato in his Republic, he talked about how the individual, the, the state is the soul writ large. He had this mm. tripartite theory of the soul where um, the, in his, his vision of a just soul uh, mirrored a just society. So and a, and a just society was comprised of just souls, of just citizens. And so um, for Plato, a just soul was a rightly ordered, a rightly proportioned soul, where love of wisdom ruled our passions, restrained our lusts and, and, um, and impulses through courage, through, through, through thumos. And that was a rightly proportioned, rightly ordered soul. And that, that mirrored and, and supported a just society led by a philosopher king in Plato's Republic, and, um, which, which restrained the, the, the demos, the masses, through the Praetorian class. And, and so um, my, my theory of social change is inherently... Um, it's local, it's, it's individual, that um, when we instrumentalize others, that we don't just hurt others. And, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm borrowing from Socrates and borrowing from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in, mm-hmm. this, in this conception. Um, both, so Socrates said that virtue is its own reward, vice is its own punishment. And what's the symptom of, of, of vice? It's a, uh, what, what's the symptom of a soul that is disordered? It's viciousness, it's an, an injustice, acting cruelly to others. And Plato said that we should not disdain people who are cruel and acting unjustly in society. We should have pity on them. Because they, are, they, have, they have a sickness of the soul, whether they realize it or not. Mm-hmm. Whereas people who act virtuously and graciously, that's its own reward. That's, that, that's virtue. That's health and flourishing of, of, of the soul. And, and Dr. King says something similar. He was very influenced by Socrates in his letter from Birmingham Jail. Dr. King um, talks about segregation. He says segregation obviously hurts the segregated. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's mutually harmful. It, it also deforms the soul of the segregator. Mm. And um, because it gives the segregator a false sense of superiority. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I make that case that civility is an inherent uh, an instrumental good. It, it has um, many positive externalities. It supports this project of limited government, of democracy, of human flourishing, as I argue throughout the book. But it's also an inherent good. It's good to, good to treat someone um, with respect just by virtue of our shared moral status as, as members of the human community. And it's good for its own sake, for the sake of our own soul. It's its own Reward for the sake of having a just and healthy, well-ordered soul. I love this. This is so often uh, conversations around civility or civil discourse are grounded in uh, a kind of skill building, like uh, an ability to talk to people who are disagreeable or uh, challenging. We'll say. But what I think is beautiful about the treatment that you put into the book and the way that you're thinking about civility is that it's it's something much deeper than merely the ability to talk across differences. Uh, It's grounded in a kind of habituation, it's grounded in a kind of orientation toward others that really is a kind of moral claim 
above and beyond merely a claim about how we ought to treat each other, some of the, the mereness of what typically comes up in the conversation. What, why do you think that's so important? Right? So I, I'm convinced, but why do you think it's the case that uh, we are better understood thinking about civility as a disposition, as a, a kind of element of character that then manifests in the way in which we engage in the world, the way that we think about others, right? Their, their dignity, their equality, the kind of humanness mm-hmm. that comes out. Uh, why is that so particularly important, and particularly to avoid that notion of civil civility or civil discourse as a, a skill of conversation? Mm-hmm. There's... Um there's a great George Bernard Shaw line, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, where he says, you know, it's, one can get away with absolute murder if one only went through the trouble of perfectly following all the rules. You know, mm-hmm. And that's kind of the problem with, with, with techniques and skill building and, and, mm-hmm. and politeness, right? These, these external things that people want rules. They want these like static, fixed um, maxims to live their lives by. And human life is way too fluid and complex to to be distilled to, to just a set of, of, of static rules. We need the disposition of civility that, that actually respects others to help guide us, to let us know when it's appropriate to break rules mm-hmm. of, of propriety. Um, and this is, um, you know, to, to, to make a friend feel welcome at a dinner table, um, but also for... Um, I have a whole chapter in my book on civil disobedience for that for that exact reason, breaking you know rules of propriety, breaking laws even that are unjust, and say some human life is more valuable than others. But um, I'll tell you the the story um, that illustrates this really well is uh, when Queen Victoria had the uh, Queen of Persia to her home for dinner uh, at, a, at a state dinner. Um, Queen, the Queen of per- uh, Persia did the unthinkable. She took the bowl in front of her and tipped it to her lips. And the, the room was aghast. They, they, this is Victorian England, you know, Victorian England, very fastidious about the rules of mm. etiquette and ornate, you know, Baroque uh, rituals. But what did Queen Victoria do? She did the exact same thing. She took the bowl and sipped it and tipped it to her lips as well. You know, breaking the rules of etiquette and, and propriety of the day, why? To make her guest feel welcome and, and, and comfortable. Uh, and for the sake of, of flourishing and, and, and trust building and having you know, a good rest of the evening. Mm-hmm. And so we, they, again, the, the rules of politeness are, are insufficient. They're not mm-hmm. enough. They, they, ca- they can be a good start, especially in children, especially in education, to start there. But we, uh, I, there's a great um, uh, Samuel Johnson line, like, you have to know the rules in order to break them, you know, but, like, we need, the, we need to cultivate the disposition of civility mm-hmm. uh, and, and emphasize actually being good, con- doing, doing a, and saying things that are truly respectful um, and not just pretending to be so. And too often we're content with just the ritual mm-hmm. and not the heart behind the action, which is more important. Absolutely. I neglected to mention earlier, but one of my, my favorite things that you do in addition to writing this book is uh, founding uh, Civic Renaissance. And part of what you talked about early on in the newsletter you send out and gets covered extensively in the book is this idea of uh, porching, which I love. Uh, so uh, in a second, I'd love for you to share that story. But one of the things that I think is great about it is in that personal journey of moving to Indianapolis and the situation that you had there, the way in which, um, we'll call it sort of rediscovered for you, uh, 
a tie to the community in a way in which manifested this kind of civility that is both welcoming and builds bonds in a community in a fruitful way and manifests both the, the, the sort of inner disposition but the social mm-hmm. outcomes that come with it. So would you be so kind as to share with the, the group joining us today, what in the world is porching? <laughs> so I, um, I call myself a refugee from federal government. I left government utterly dispirited with our the state of our world, our public life, our public leaders, and um, I thought deeply, you know, about these these questions, like what does it mean to be human, and what is the bare minimum of respect that we are owed and owed to others um, by virtue of our shared humanity? That's sort of the moral foundation of um, of civility as I approach it. But I came home from work one day and said to my husband, "I'm done with DC. I'm done with government." let's move to Indiana. Mm-hmm. And he's from Indiana originally, and we had talked about moving there one day to be closer to his family, you know, raise our own family. And my husband says, okay, sounds good. We'll move to Indiana. No take backs. <laughs> and within, a, within a, a few months, we had moved out there, and we've been there about five mm-hmm. years now. And um, one of my first friends when I moved to Indiana was a woman named Joanna Taft. She came up to me uh, spontaneously one day after church, and she said, hi, I'm Joanna. Would you like to porch with us sometime? And I'd never heard the word porch used as a verb before. This was new to be as well. <laughs> but, you know, curious, and we didn't know many people. We went to her porch that afternoon, and she I saw something radical. I realized that she is staging a quiet revolution against our divided and atomized status quo from her front porch. Um, she had curated people across race, across class, across politics, across geography, in order to not have a you know structured conversation across difference, but just to inha- inhabit a shared space. And um, you know, an argument of my book that we haven't touched on so far is is that you know I argue that this is a timeless problem. This this question of how do we flourish even when we d- deeply disagree. This is the most important question of our day. It's the defining question of the classical liberal project, the defining question of democracy, but this is also a timeless human question, the timeless human question. How do we overcome the self-love in our nature and thrive, become fully human in in relationship? And I um, am intentional to survey across history and across culture to illustrate the timelessness of this and the, the intractability of this problem. And yet, there are many things in our, our current moment that are different. And one of them is that it's exceptionally easy to go about our lives and not encounter people that we don't want to encounter. This is virtually, but also physically. You know, we live in an age of, of digital nomadery, is it, if, that's, if, that's, if that's how you can say it, uh, where, you know, people don't go to the office anymore. If they do, it's a few days a week. And if they, if, even if it's more than that, they go from their homes to their cars to their offices and back again. And we can have groceries, you know, Netflix, everything is like at our fingertips and delivered to us. And we can curate our existences, again, in the digital space, we hear about echo chambers all the time, but also physically in a way that doesn't expose us to people we differ from or just don't want to be around. Right. And that's what's so radical about and subversive about Joanna's front porch and this porching revolution, that it's, it's, it's just bringing people together across these silos, across these differences, just to be together. And again, not to have this structured conversation across difference, just to see each other as human beings first. And it's a place to be seen and known and loved, again, just, just um, because of who we are and not because of these labels that society wants us to assign value and identity mm-hmm. to. And uh, it was it was beautiful. Like that, this is where seeds of, of trust and friendship 
were, were sowed and, 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 and cultivated and nurtured uh, in hopes that maybe one day conversations across difference could, could happen. But this is also another problem with our public life right now, that we lack that basic affection, that basic trust across difference with our, our fellow human beings, our fellow citizens. And so we're just assuming the worst and, and talking about the hard things all day, every day. And it's exhausting and, and bad for public discourse, bad for democracy. And um, so what, what, what I learned from Joanna is that you know she is reclaiming her power, her civic sphere. She recognizes that she can't change the world. She can't ha- control what's happening in Washington. She can't control what's happening across the world, suffering, you know, happening all around us all the time. But she can control herself. And she's mm-hmm. chosen to double down and make her community better and stronger. And I realized when I was a Novak Journalism Fellow where um, I, I was able to travel the country, and mm-hmm. I realized that people across our country are doing the same thing, both mm-hmm. with and without a front porch. That it's about the disposition of, of porching, of civility, of wanting to transform the outsider to the inside, of the stranger into the friend. And that, you know, I, I saw some people doing this from from c- coffee shops, from cafes, they would just hold court certain o- hours and just like, it was just a, a, an oasis so, um, from their front stoop, from their front lawn, that, or, their, or their living rooms, you know, hosting you know, regular dinner parties, that it's not about the porch, although the porch is a great metaphor for what this is. Uh, it's, it's, it's the disposition of civility, the, the disposition of seeing others as people first and wanting to, to bring them into your fold and, and, and to plug them in and to, um, and to develop friendships that, that, that will, will heal our uh, and divided time. It reminds me much, uh, like you mentioned later in the book, of uh, Tocqueville's observations of the associational nature of the American people. So it's, it is the, the almost hyper-local manifestation of something very similar, that tendency to how do we bring people together, how do we engage, and how do we use that as a, a way to, to get in the world. But thinking of Tocqueville... And so much of what he's doing in his adventure, he's coming around America, he's pretending to explore the prison system and writing a book and engaging in all of that. And what he does is he sees a whole variety of different things about this culture and he pulls out the almost uh, universal threads of the age, Mm -hmm. as you might say. One of the things that I think is really extraordinarily interesting about your book is you, you start with, of all things, the epic of Gilgamesh, right? And trace so many of these ideas and conversations throughout cultures, throughout society, throughout time, perhaps immemorial. What makes these things sort of timeless? Mm -hmm. Uh, So often when we think about things like customs, etiquette, mores, we, we want to tie them to a place, we want to tie them to a culture, we want to tie them to a moment in time. And the argument of your book, both explicitly and implicitly, is that they're more than that. There's something about civility that transcends time. Mm-hmm. It transcends place. And that's fascinating mm-hmm. as an argument. I'd love to explore that a little bit further. So tell me what, what led you to that insight. First, that there's something happening here that's not merely bound up with being an American in the 21st century or being a Frenchman in the 17th century or whatever it might happen to be, but really is something... Uh, timeless, mm-hmm. as your subtitle suggests. Mm-hmm. The, the, the challenge to civility is in our nature as human beings. Uh, and I you know, distilled this from reading deeply and, and widely. Um, I, um, you know, as, as human beings, we are profoundly social. We become fully human in relationship with others. Mm-hmm. We achieve our potential 
as human beings in, in friendship and in community, as in, in cooperation and, um, and community. And yet, morally and biologically, we're driven to meet our own needs before others. Mm. And, and, and those two facets of who we are our intention. And before you call me out, Alan, I will tell you, I had a very long footnote once in my book. I think mm. it got edited out about, you know, enlightened self-interest and mm. Bernard Mandeville and how, you know, public, private vice can lead yeah. to public virtue. I'm happy to unpack that. This seems like the crowd <laughs> to unpack that if you want to, but I do, I do understand that nuance, but mm-hmm. uh, for the, for simplicity's sake, for this argument that yeah. the social and the selfish are intention like that, you know, um, and that is why human, the, 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 this joint project of living well with others in, in, in friendship, in, in community, in, in a democracy, in civilization itself, is always fragile. It is never a foregone conclusion because this duality, this, this, um, these two facets of who we are as human beings. And so I, I unpack the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is the oldest story in the world that I'll let you buy the book and read to understand why that's mm-hmm. a, an important important story for, the, for the, the sake of civility. But just to kind of ground this conversation, like these themes are coeval with, with our species, with what it means to be human. And then I start um, chapter, so the, the first part, the first chapter is uh, about the timelessness of the problem, this, this duality in our nature. And then chapter two is about the timelessness of the solution. And that chapter I begin with the oldest book in the world. And the oldest book in the world is a civility book given to us from ancient Egypt, 2350 BC. It's called The Teachings of Tahotep. Tahotep mm-hmm. is a great story. He was someone who had been at the pinnacle of political and worldly life. And um, he had even been offered the opportunity to become pharaoh of ancient Egypt. He had been an advisor to pharaoh for much of his life. And he turned down that offer of temporal power in order to uh, retire and live a, a pastoral life and a, a quiet life. And once he had retired from public life, he thought deeply about the timeless principles of human flourishing. Mm-hmm. And he set pen to paper, and, um, and he wrote down these maxims that he intended as a gift for Pharaoh's son in hopes that Pharaoh's son would be a wise and just leader when he became Pharaoh. And what's remarkable is that Tahotep's maxims, his teachings, are timeless. They could be in a Miss Manners... Um, Judith Martin, Washington Post column today. Um, there, are, there are maxims like, don't be good to your friends and neighbors just when you need something. Be good to them all the time just mm-hmm. because they're your friends and neighbors. Tahotep says, do not abuse a power differential. If you have authority over someone, don't exploit that. Be good and gentle to mm-hmm. the vulnerable in society. Tahotep says, and four, maybe five maxims, do not slander. He's, at, he's absolutely um, categorical about, about this. Don't gossip. Mm. Don't malign someone's reputation when they can't defend themselves. And there are, in these 37 teachings and maxims, like they are just remarkably timeless. And we see these ideas about um, how to do life together, how to flourish with others, surface time and time again across history and across culture. And the, and the crux of them, the thing that unites them, is, 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 is the crux of true civility, which is restraining the ego, restraining the worst parts of ourselves, what, what we otherwise might want to do, mm-hmm. for the sake of community, for the sake of living well with others. It's, it's self-restraint, it's self-control, it's self-discipline. And sometimes people, these thinkers, these, these thoughtful um, 
reflect, reflectors on, on norms and mores of the day, these civility writers, sometimes they were influenced by one another. For example, we know the ancient Greeks loved the Egyptians. They really, um, they thought they were very sophisticated and many of them traveled to Egypt. So it's possible that someone brought back the maxims of Tata to ancient Egypt and they had, you know, influence over there. Um, but, and then of course the Greeks have had influence across history and culture, but also, but often it was just thoughtful people who observed the human condition and the human experience and inductively said, you know, what works well when it comes to living with others and what detracts from the human social project and let's do more of what works and do less of what mm -hmm. detracts from it. And so there is this core of human wisdom that again, sometimes it's iterative, it's a dialogue, it's, it was, it was you know, a, the custodians of tradition pass these ideas on uh, and influence one another, but often people came to them independently just through, just through observation of, um, of, of the human experience. And so I draw from this, this body of human wisdom from across history and across culture and deploy it as, for us to, you know, not, not to have any simple solutions because there are no simple solutions to this problem. This is a timeless, intractable problem. So people that you know, come along and, and want to blame one public leader, one technology um, for, to, as the problem, or they, you know, they start a new nonprofit or you know, write a book. They're, like, there's no simple solution. <laughs> either, that this right. is a, a timeless, intractable problem that requires a lot of thought, a lot of humility, but people have been thinking about this problem for a very long time, and I, my, my aim is to revive this, 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 this wisdom mm -hmm. uh, about how to flourish, even when we deeply differ and disagree, to help us think more clearly about this problem today and how we each might be part of the solution. So you do a, a, an impressive job throughout the book of tracing these ideas to different speakers and authors and cultures throughout history, throughout the world, in a way in which there's a, a really impressive commonality that comes in in all of those places. What I wanted to push just a little bit and think a little bit more about uh, one of the other features that you talk about is the etymology of a lot of these words and the, the ties to them. If we think about kiwis or the, the foundation behind things like civilization or polis and the political, each of those ideas philosophically are rooted deeply in a particular political community, right? There's a kind of universal approach to some of these virtues, as Aristotle might talk about, but also a, a particularism to those given communities, the, the things that hold us together. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm going to explore just one, one particular example where I think raises some interesting challenges, and you, you touch on this some in the book, and that's the, you might call it the problem of equality, right? So as we think about equality in a modern sense of the idea, we're really thinking about a sort of political and moral equality of people. And that changes some um, thinking about the, the role of the regime, the role of the government, the relationship between the citizens. That seems meaningfully different as a, a way of engaging in the world and the implications of civility there than, say, uh, a notion like uh, what we see in the ancient world of a kind of aristocratic notion or a regal notion of these are like uh, these are the rules that you ought to behave with toward your subjects and or among the court and what those things happen to be. So to, to what extent do we think about equality or similar ideas as being challenges to thinking about a universalism mm -hmm. of civility or really is that something or perhaps maybe the argument goes something like this, that manifests over time. That is, as we've progressed mm -hmm. over these several thousands of years, 
the root of that notion was always inherent in what made civility possible, and that's some of what we're realizing over the course of that engagement. That's a, a wandering way of pushing no, a, a general a, question in your way. It's a very sophisticated like, question. How do, we, I'm gonna, how do we think about that? Yeah, I'm going to take two strands for yeah. that very sophisticated question. Um, one is about the, the, one and the one and the many, right? The, the universal and the particular, which is the foundational question of philosophy. Mm -hmm. And what I learned while researching for this book is that while the rules of etiquette and, and politeness, you know, technique, manners, they tend to change across history and across culture, and often they're a way to define insider from outsider, mm -hmm. both between societies and within a society, like between classes. And um, a great example is the, the Greeks and the Macedons. The, the Greeks and the Macedons were both Greek, mm -hmm. but the Greeks had, like, they gave us our word barbarian because it, gave, it, it, it was how all non-Greek speakers sounded to Greek ears. They, said, they thought it was all bar, bar, bar. So if you're not Greek, you're a barbarian. That's like how we get that word barbarian. And the Greeks thought that anyone who wasn't Greek wasn't just, you know, uh, wasn't just not Greek. They were not just different. They were just, they were also morally and culturally and intellectually inferior. And so they, they made up all these, you know, rules of, 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 of etiquette and propriety. Um, and, and like, you know, how, how they, they, they said, oh, the Macedons, they drink their wine this way. We drink ours this way. We, you know, eat our food like this. They eat their food like that. Like they, they um, you know, erected all these rules to differentiate themselves and tell a narrative about why they were superior using manners. Um, so while, while manners tend to be, you know, gatekeepers in the, in the exclusive sense, the, the timeless principles of civility, again, restraining the self for the sake of flourishing with others, they tend to be relatively timeless across class, so within a society and across history mm -hmm. as well. Um, again, restraining the worst parts of ourself and flourishing in, in relationship with others, which I think is, is really fascinating. Um, and then the second part of your question was about equality and you know, how, do, how do we grapple with, um, with the change, changeability of equality across, across history. So in my chapter um, on civil disobedience, actually, I tell an interesting story that I think is pertinent to equality. Um, has anyone here heard of Edward Coles before? Maybe you have because you've read the book, but anyone else here? Edward Coles. He's this wonderful unsung hero of, of American and I think world history that, that no one has heard of, but I think we should. There are many figures in my book that I think are due for a revival. So I want everyone to read the book and then help me revive all these thinkers that haven't gotten the dap that they're due so far. Mm -hmm. um, so Edward Coles, he was a neighbor to Thomas Jefferson and, um, and an aide in the White House to James Madison. He was a, a generation after the founders. And while he was an aide to, to James Madison, he um, did something kind of remarkable. Early in his life, he had become really persuaded about the moral evils of slavery. And um, he, he, he kept that a secret, and he waited till his father died, inherited his slaves, and immediately manumitted them. Um, he ended up moving to Illinois. His slaves followed him as, as, as freed persons, and he ended up running for governor and becoming governor of Illinois on an abolitionist platform and was an inspiration and hero to Abraham Lincoln. Um, so that's all just, just context. But while he was a young man... And while he was an aide to Thomas to, to James Madison in the White House, he wrote to Thomas Jefferson, imploring Jefferson to aid him and his fellow abolitionists in the abolitionist cause. And this is one of the only instances in history um, that I'm aware of that we have Jefferson confronted mm -hmm. with this foundational hypocrisy. Edward Cole says, 
Jefferson, like you are the architect of liberty. You know, you wrote these words, life, liberty, and pursuit of, um, and pursuit of happiness for, for all, you know? And yet you own slaves. Mm-hmm. Edward Cole says, we need you. He said, we need your help. Like you're this elder statesman. Uh, you have incredible gravitas. You're so t- smart and talented. Like we need you in this fight for, uh, against the moral evil of slave- mm-hmm. slavery. Amazingly, Jefferson responds. He says, Edward, great to hear from you. Thanks for your note. Um, he says, you're right. You're right. You know, that this slavery is wrong. Um, everyone knows that. And he says, but you don't need my help. He says, look at, look at, it's going to happen anyways. He says, look at the Haitian revolution. Mm-hmm. Like this is already happening. And I'm too old, he says. He just goes down all these litany of excuses for why he doesn't want to help in the abolitionist cause. Jefferson, um, so Jefferson sends that note. Uh, Edward Coles writes back and says, and just like dismantles every single one of his excuses, one after the other, for example, uh, in response to Jefferson's claim that he's too old to help in the abolitionist cause. Um, Edward Coles says, you know, Benjamin Franklin's on our side. He's helping us, you know, fight abolition, and he's no spring chicken. <laughs> and just goes one by one down, dismantling right. his arguments. And Jefferson, and he, you know, says one more time, like, please, we need your help. And Jefferson never responds mm-hmm. after that. And I use that story in the in the book to um, to show how speaking truth to power is is a, 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 an exemplar as a, a manifestation of civility. Like Edward Coles could have stayed silent, but he, but I, but you know, I think he was saying, I respect you enough, Jefferson, to hold you accountable, to to to, to call you out on your hypocrisy, like you not living out to your, up to your ideals, and that was risky for him. You know, Jefferson was this elder statesman who could have destroyed Edward Coles's career and made sure he never worked in politics again, and yet he took that risk and um and 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 you know stood up to Jefferson and called him out for that. And yet, I also like that story, uh, which pertain for, for a reason which pertains to your question, is because we hear a lot today um, that people people want to they say don't judge the past by the standards of the present. Mm-hmm. You know that we can't we can't condemn leaders and cultures that didn't give equal treatment to minorities, to to slaves, to uh, to women. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but we're more enlightened now, and, and we, we, we now see the moral wrong, but let's not, let's not condemn them right. that. But what I love about stories like Coles, and there are many others like Coles across history, mm-hmm. uh, in American history and, and world history, who saw the moral evil of slavery, who saw the moral evil of the subjugation of women and, and, other, and other ethnic and cultural minorities, and, and were, uh, like, for example, I'd love to tell the story of Albert Schweitzer, if we have, if we have time, who was critical, uh, excruciatingly critical of, of um, colonization uh, and the moral evils of, of exploiting, uh, exploiting um, Africa and, uh, in the name of civilization, which he called faux civilization. And, and, and yet the life and stories of people like Edward Coles show us that you know, you, you can't say don't judge the past by the standards of the present because there were people in those times who saw the moral, the the the, the um, immorality of, of that sort of thinking, the the mm-hmm. and the and the lack of coherent logic and 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 lived their lives according to their their ideals and their their values, their principles, um, and which I think is, is fascinating and important and inspiring for us today. Yeah. What I love about the The standpoint of looking back in history and looking at sort of Jefferson's inconsistency, even when when pushed on the matter, is a reminder of the importance of humility now, of the ways in which uh, 
It may not be obvious to us, but we are very likely falling short of the very standards that a generation or two we will look back on and say, how could we have, right? It gives us both humility toward ourselves and where we are, but also humility toward the past and understanding those other figures. It's a, it's a challenging thing. So what, what I think is fascinating about the, the work is the, to the extent that we think about these things as timeless, but also in time, and similarly placeless, but sort of placeful at the same time, is that there is not merely a separation between uh, civility as one thing and its manifestation in the world as another, right? The, the kinds of pieces that are tied to it, the, the forms of manners, the forms of custom, the forms of etiquette, are a way of which these things tend to manifest in the situation around us. Mm-hmm. Not simply, they're, they're time-bound, they're culture-bound, and so forth. But one of the things I think is interesting is how you then go in to talk about civil disobedience and that need to, to push back and engage differently. And in fact, as a, a fulfilling of civility properly understood. That is, if we are being civil, if we are practicing that disposition of civility, sometimes that precisely calls for what seems to be some of the most uncivil kinds of acts, and traditionally understood, that you might engage in. How is that so? Can you elucidate a little bit further for us the relationship between civility properly understood and the way in which that then can manifest in things like Dr. King's civil disobedience movement and others, and the kind of purification that you mentioned mm-hmm. that went into engaging those kinds of activities. So I, I argue that, as I've already mentioned, that civility is both an inherent good and an instrumental mm-hmm. good. You know, it's good to treat our fellow human beings with a bare minimum of respect that they're owed, and we are owed by virtue of our shared moral status, our, our dignity as members of the human community. That is good in and of itself, but it is also an instrumental good. Mm-hmm. Civility, as I define it throughout the book, um, can and has been a, a tool of, of social progress, of, of realizing equality, and it, it can once once more again be today. I, I revive the tradition of, of, I reclaim the whole tradition of civil disobedience. And I'll pause there and, and talk about the etymology for a second because we've alluded to that. So um, we, we often use the words civility and politeness interchangeably. As I've mentioned, it's important to separate them. Um, the etymology of these two words, civility and politeness, supports the distinction I make and the definition, the definitions I, I, I offer. Um, the, the Latin root of politeness is polier, which means to smooth or to polish. And that's what politeness is and does. It papers over, polishes over difference, as opposed to giving us the tools to grapple with difference head on. The etymology of civility is kivitas, which is all things related to citizen, citizenship, the city, civilization. And that is what civility is. It's the duties, the habits um, befitting a member of a free society of of, of the human of of of, of, of democracy, uh, which again, especially in a democracy, requires being impolite, ro- right. ro- having robust, engaging in robust debate, telling hard truths, disagreeing, and um, to to your point about um, how this pertains to um, equality, is that what we're talking about? Mm. 
uh, what are we talking about? What was the question again? I'm Sorry. thinking about civil disobedience. Civil disobedience, yeah, yeah about equality, about how right. this is a tool for, to yeah. support equality. Thank you. Um, I, I talk about uh, Dr. King's civil, nonviolent, peaceful resistance and um, how he used civility, as I define it, to uh, as a tool of, of social progress and equality. So anyone who wanted to be part of his nonviolent, peaceful resistance movement had to un undergo this process of purification, which was essentially cultivating the disposition of civility. It, it, it's cultivating a love of respect and affection for their fellow human beings which compel, and their fellow citizens, which compelled them to take action and, and to stand up to them in the form of protest, in the form of sit-ins, in the form of you know, letter-writing campaigns, all these tools of civil disobedience that, that they engaged in. So I argue that civility is, um, it both compels action, it demands action sometimes, but it also takes certain action off the table. So in, in this instance, Dr. King understood that civil, um, that, that actually loving and respecting one's fellow citizens required confronting them with the ugliness and their incorrectness and in how they viewed the world through, like they, they you know, that, that, the, the subtext of the protest was that, you know, you, you have an incorrect view of the world, you know, and see your, 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 your bigoted views, your, your view, your views of white supremacy. And I'm going to confront you with that through, through these actions. That's, that's actually loving. That is a way to respect them. That, so it's civility compelled that action, but it also took certain action off the table. For example, um, he never allowed their their um, nonviolent peaceful resistance to engage in violence or anything dehumanizing, any any you know violent destruction of property uh, or ad hominem attack that um, Dr. King and, and many others um, before him, such as Frederick Douglass, William Lord Garrison, other prominent abolitionists, uh, William Will, William Wilberforce as well. They understood that you couldn't, in the pursuit of perfect equality and human dignity, respect for human dignity, dehumanize some people in the process and degrade their dignity along the way that, um, you know, and Gandhi has this great line that says, means are everything. You know, we, we live in this apocalyptic time where people want the ends, the noble nobility of, of one's goals to justify the means, you know, and, and getting rid of anyone who's standing in your way, like this famous Stalin line, like, you know, to make an omelet, you have to crack a few eggs. Like that's the, that aphorism is like the epitome of instrumentalizing other human beings. And yet, um, Dr. King, Gandhi, they understood that means mattered. Hmm. You couldn't dehumanize some in, on, in, on your way to the pursuit of realizing equal human dignity. So I have many more questions I want to ask, but I'm told that I should actually let the audience <laughs> engage in the conversation, which is uh, terribly unjust in this moment. <laughs> but uh, what we wanted to do is turn it over both to our in-person audience, we'll have individuals running around with microphones, as well as be taking uh, questions from our, our virtual audience. For those of you joining us online, uh, please do use the hashtag TeacherSphere uh, so we can make sure to identify those questions. Uh, let's start by taking one from here in the room, uh, questions to begin with. Over here in the middle. Hi. Um, so you talked about how your book would help people realize being, how they could be part of the solution. Um, does it prompt us to look inward at how we could have been part of the problem as well? It's a great question. Thank you. Um, yes. Of course, and it's you know, that, and that's very countercultural. Like the easy thing to do these days is to point fingers and to blame. Like everyone else is the problem. Twitter is the problem. Like X Y Z person's the problem. And yet, you know, what did Christ say? Like 
why are you looking at the speck in your brother's eye when you have a log in your own? Mm-hmm. You know, like I absolutely prompt and encourage people to look to look inward um, and, and look at their own contributions to this problem and the possibility of being part of the solution too. And an under, undercurrent throughout the book is that, again, we have way more power to be part of the solution than we realize. And, and to your question, we're often part of the problem even when we might not realize it. And just being thoughtless, you know, we're, even when we are not actively being malicious and going out of our way to harm someone, that you're just being thoughtless, that, you know, inconsiderately, inconsiderately letting the door slam on someone's face, you know, behind us, like that, that is a way to, that could bother someone for the rest of the day, you know, that, that, um, we, we insufficiently appreciate the power we each have, the way in which our everyday interactions, um, great and small, can contribute to uh, detract from this, this joint project of living well or, or support it. In my book, um, you'll see the cover here, the, um, the, the metaphor of, of the garden is, mm. is, through, is throughout. It's, it's kind of an undercurrent throughout. And I conceive of civilization as a garden. So this joint project of human communities is a garden. And each one of us has, all we have is an individual plot of land. And all we can control in this garden of civilization is what we sow and cultivate in our plot of land. We can choose to sow um, seeds of corrosive and invasive species, species that zap the nutrients from the soil and invade the plots of land around us and detract from this, this, this flourishing, vibrant, diverse ecosystem of the garden of civilization. Or we can choose through our everyday uh, words and actions, um, our, our acts of charity and grace, kindness and compassion, sow seeds of life-giving crops that, that are regenerative, that, that give life to the soil, and that uh, create crops of abundance and beauty that delight and give life to our, our, our surrounding plots of land as well, our, our fellow citizens as well. And, and that all we can control, again, is what we do with our individual plot of land. But that our daily decisions have consequences. It can either support or detract from the, the garden of civilization. I want to combine a couple of questions that we've received online. Both are really from educators joining us. Uh, someone asks, what role can schools play in developing the civility of young people, especially in a politically charged climate where schools are viewed with suspicion? And then similarly, uh, I'm really interested in the concepts you discuss in your book. I'm a history educator, and I teach my students about the power of empathy. How does empathy relate to thinking about these ideas? So twofold. One, how do we, how do we think about empathy in the relationship of empathy towards civility broadly? But then with that, how can educators, particularly those joining us online, bring these concepts to bear in their classrooms? Mm-hmm. In, in my uh, chapter on education, I, I talk about how there has to be a partnership between homes and parents and, and teachers. It's, it's an impossible ask for teachers to bear all the responsibility of inculcating civility. I think ultimately this starts and I think ends in the home and that there has to be a partnership between, mm. um, between, between home life and, and parent life. Like if a, a teacher, one can be the best teacher in the world you know, and inculcate the best values, but if they don't have that support at home and it's not corroborated there, then it's, 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 it's futile. And so um, I do ultimately think that it has to be, it starts in the home, but it has to be, it has to be this partnership. And I think that we often insufficiently realize the power that our behavior um, has. Like, we, it's easy to, you know, think that what we say matters most, and we wish that were the case, but it's also how we live our lives. And so I talk about in our book 
in my book, um, how do we cultivate cultures of um, of civility and and not politeness, mm. not um, pretending to be good and um, not being content with pretending to be good, but actually cultivating um, being good in our in our students and expecting that of them, and, and not having them be content with blind fo- blindly following rules. Although following the rules is important in a classroom right. setting, but also um, get get into the disposition behind what we do. Mm-hmm. And and to the question on um, on empathy, I love uh, Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments. Adam Smith is is throughout my book, and it's his his work of moral philosophy that unpacks a theory of human flourishing through this idea of sympathy, which is analogous to our contemporary idea for empathy. And it's about how it's kind of analogous in some ways this concept of of. Ubuntu, like how we become fully human through others. This is an African proverb and concept about a person becoming a person through others. And Smith has a very sophisticated understanding of man as a social animal that becomes our best selves, becomes fully human in, in relationship, um, in relationship with others. And so um, I love, like, I think the research shows that empathy is like a muscle. You know, cultivate like, the more we act with with empathy, the more we act with consideration towards others, mm-hmm. the more it grows, the more it builds. And that's the same with. Um, with all these habits of, of, of civility, that both cultivating the disposition leads to virtuous a- actions. It's like mm-hmm. orthopraxy and orthodoxy, like right belief leads to right action, but also right action can lead to right belief too. And so acting you know, selflessly, acting with compassionate empathy, acting with consideration of the other alongside of ourselves in practice, even we might not want to, can, can lead to and cultivate and foster civility in classroom settings and in our own lives, too. I love that you bring up multiple times in the book uh, Adam Smith's notion of being loved and being lovely, mm-hmm. and uh, being lovely as uh, being worthy of love in the sense of being the kind of person who engages in the world in this way. So it's a, it's a beautiful example from the theory of moral sentiments. Uh, what are the questions we have in person? Let's go over here to this gentleman. Here in the, the row there in the back. Um, I know you left Washington for lots of good reasons, but could you try to relate much of what you have said or the research you did to prepare for this book to the world of geopolitics that exists today? Mm -hmm. If you were to address the UN General Assembly, where the world is full of conflicts over, this is my tribe's land, not yours. No, this is my tribe's land, not yours. You can stay, but only if you're subservient to me. Or your views are so despicable, I have to smash you and destroy you, or Mm -hmm. whatever that's happening around the world. What would you do if you were queen of the world for a year to, 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 to deal with all of this. And I know that's not the subject of your book, but can you try to relate it to the world that we live in in the geopolitical sense? Thanks. What would I do if I were queen for a year? Abdicate. <laughs> um, so if I were, you know, it's, it's, a great, it's a great question. You know, how do these ideas apply to a geopolitical level. Um, I, in chapter four of my book, I reference and explore a speech given by Lord Moulton to the House of Commons um, uh, after World War II. He had been a war minister, dur- sorry, World War I. He had been a war minister during World War uh, I uh, in, in the um, in English parliament. And 
in this speech, he, he talks about what he calls the obedience to the unenforceable. And he says there are three spheres of human life. On one hand, on, uh, there, there is um, the, the realm of positive law. That's where the government dictates what we do and what we don't do. And then he says, on the other hand, there is this sphere of pure agency and free will where we can do whatever we want. But he says within these two spheres, there is this middle ground that he calls the obedience to the unenforceable, where we're not totally free. We have duties to others, and yet there's no government or body or repercussions to not doing what we ought to do. And that's what he calls the obedience to the unenforceable. And uh, that he thinks supports human flourishing, civilization, and a free society. And I, I thought about this a lot. My book came out three days after Hamas invaded Israel. And uh, I mean, it was, it was appropriate. Everyone should have been watching, the, 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 you know, paying attention to the atrocities that were, that were happening there. And, 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 um, but I, I realized that my book um, you know, has, has a contribution to this conversation. First of all, it's, it's a humanistic manifesto. It's a manifesto of the profound gift of what it means to be human in these very divided, barbaric times that we find ourselves in now. Um, and secondly, this idea of the, the obedience to the unenforceable, I think, is, is really interesting. We, 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 during times of war, we often hear uh, international war laws tossed around. And they're actually more appropriately called international war norms because there is no enforcing body with teeth to like descend and control and, 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 and punish if these laws and, and norms are not upheld. Um, and, and, and across history and across culture, these norms these have, 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 uh, have been um, instituted that are fundamentally pro-human. It's like to prevent society and humanity from annihilating itself and causing unnecessary suffering. For example, norms against intentionally uh, targeting civilians, norms against unnecessary brutality to women and children, uh, proportionality. These are all norms. They're not laws. But, it, but it, this, is, this is the realm of the obedience to the unenforceable. How are we acting when there's no repercussions to how we act? And I'll tell you a funny story, or not a funny story, a, a tragic story that I just um, came across recently that illustrates this. Um, during the um, Soviet Union, mm -hmm. the Soviet Union like almost annihilated the world's whale population single-handedly, not for any reason other than that, that Stalin's five-year plans said, we need whales. <laughs> it, there was no like need for oil or, or you know, blubber. And, and, and it was just this catastrophe of um, kind of fly-by-night whaling that was in totally contravening the, what's it called, the International Whaling Accord. I can't remember the exact title of it. Mm -hmm. uh, but I mean, when it comes to the vastness of the ocean, these bodies that exist to preserve wildlife, marine life, they, they're, they're not everywhere. Like, we don't have an international whaling police state where there are people watching and making sure. Like, like, and, and the Russians uh, during the Soviet Union, they chronically lied and, and underreported how many whales that they were. And they, they, you know, they were supposed to hunt a few thousand. They ended up hunting like 150,000 and like decimated and you know, caused extinction for several different whale populations. And there ended up being like a whistleblower in the Soviet Union who, after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, you know, told the story. And, 
And he said that it was a, it really was a culture that just did not value human life at all, mm-hmm. not human life or, or natural life. And it was right. just, you know, they, they didn't need that. They would, they would take the, the, the whale blubber and then discard the rest. And, um, and it was just a, an atrocity for its own sake. Why? Because someone told them to do it and because they'd be punished at home if they didn't just blindly follow these rules. Um, so anyway, to this point about, um, you know, doing, acting right even when authority to figure is telling you to act wrong, and even when there's no repercussion, no one watching you, right? Like these people got away, you know, for, with doing these things for decades, you know, to, to great devastation to our, 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 our globe's marine life. Um, so anyway, the obedience to the unenforceable is, is the message I would give to the UN, to our international bodies. But that has repercussions not just for um, geopolitics, but also for us in our everyday. How are we acting in our everyday when no one's watching? When there are no consequences, are we treating with dignity and respect our Uber driver? Are we are we looking at the eye in the eye our, our clerk at the grocery store, affirming their humanity? Like there 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 are repercussions of that, and, and um, um, in, in ways macro and micro. So we are almost out of time, uh, and there are many wonderful questions left. So I want to recommend to all of you uh, buy the book. Many answers on there. Also subscribe to the Substack, Civic Renaissance. It's a fantastic source of consistent insight into how you think about these issues. But my last very quick question for you has to do with uh, teaching these ideas to children. Mm -hmm. So as a a mother of two beautiful young children yourself, how do you think about the importance of uh, bringing these ideas to bear to the education of young children under your care? It's such a great, such a great question, and one that I struggle to embody every day. But that is, I, th- I think, a key. It's how I embody it to this point about, you know, education is not just what we say; it's how we live our lives as well. And I mean, yes, I'm a parent, but I think all of us have young people in our lives, or even just, you know, that 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 we can influence. And we, um, so I try to. It's easy to say, you know, do as I say, not as I do. But you know. I, how do I ensure that I'm living up to these ideals of, of self-sacrifice and of service? So one thing I do with my kids is, um, you know, I'll put some snacks out and I'll make my son, who's three and a half, serve his baby sister first mm-hmm. and say, after you, baby girl, after you, Sophia mm-hmm. Margot, and then baby girl will have a little bite and then I'll make her serve her brother after you, Percival James. And just to exercise that muscle of self-sacrifice, because it is a muscle. And it's not natural. Anyone who says, like, that kids are born, you know, altruistic and, and loving, like, I, I don't think they're their parents, you know? Like, they're, they're little, mm-hmm. little, little savages sometimes. Right. And so, that uh, it takes work. It takes practice. It takes day in, day out. It's exhausting, mm-hmm. this thing called parenting and, like, nurturing <laughs> hearts and young hearts and minds. But it's essential, mm-hmm. like, both not just to teach them and train them actively through exercises like that, but to model it mm-hmm. as well, which is the harder part, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose in some ways that's the responsibility of keeping civilization alive, right? The role of the parents in doing that. Thank you all so much for joining us both here in person and online. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you all today. And Lexi, thank you in particular for joining us and for sharing your book with us. It's a fantastic resource. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you all. Thank you.